Hey y'all, it's Mandy. Before we dive into this week's episode, I just want to take a moment and thank my patrons and premium subscribers who have been here partnering with me to create this work. I love doing this with a team. So if you are interested in being someone who creates this resourcing for people who live in care deserts or who just don't have a safe community to discuss grief, check out the show notes to become a patron of the show. You'll get access to monthly bonus episodes as well as our live chat over on Discord. And I would love to hear from you. Okay, that's all I had to say. Now let's get into this week's episode. Welcome back to Restorative Grief with Mandy Capehart. You are listening to episode 85, titled Rediscovering Resiliency with Dr. Lucy Hone. Oh, you all are in for a treat with this week's episode. My guest today is Dr. Lucy Hone. She is an international speaker, best-selling author of the book, Resilient Grieving, How to Find Your Way Through a Devastating Loss, as well as a well-known thought leader in the world of resilience psychology. In 2020, her TED Talk titled Three Secrets of Resilient People went viral, landing itself in the top 20 of all TED Talks watched that year. I know I watched it. The first time I read her book, my heart was on fire. In it, she recounts the loss of her 12-year-old daughter, along with her daughter's best friend and her mother, in a horrific car accident. She investigates how her education and research on resilience could possibly be relevant to loss, and as a result, is now helping others cope with disruption, change, uncertainty, and grief in their own lives. Y'all, hosting Lucy on the show was a gift because we have talked here about positive psychology and toxic positivity before. It's easy to conflate them when you don't know what is happening. And resilience? It's a challenging concept to understand when you're faced with a sudden tragedy. So let's get into this conversation with our whole selves open to learning a new way of approaching our stories, ourselves, and our understanding of resilience in the face of grief. Hello, and nice to meet you. Oh, you as well. I'm so honored that you wanted to make time to do this. So thank you. Uh, you know, I'm in reality, I'm all about changing the dialogue around grief mm-hmm. and and actually to your questions and around positive psychology, too. I, I think I do that all the time anyway, but and it's rarely that I'm asked about it nowadays. So um, so far away and let's chat. I'm Perfect. thrilled to be here. I'm so happy. Yeah. So I want to start with that because you are this brilliant author and speaker. And of course you had that viral Ted talk back in 2020 that I think was probably a lifeline for people coping with a pandemic that they had no idea what to do with this ambiguous grief that that was sitting in front of them now. Um, And as you mentioned, I love to do some dialogue around positive psychology and dismantling toxic positivity that comes along from it. So Maybe just start by kind of framing out what resilience psychology and positive psychology are for people who are not familiar. Thank you. So let's start with positive psychology, which I studied my master's in, in 2009, such a long time ago (laughs) now. Um, And I went to University of Pennsylvania to study with Dr. Martin Seligman, who is probably the most famous living psychologist. And I went because he had created this field called positive psychology. And I have to acknowledge before I tell you what it is, 
that even back then I had, I didn't really like the phrase. I didn't like those two words, positive and psychology together. But anyway, I'm going to come back to that. So first, what is it? Um, and essentially, it is the um, investigation, the research, the theories, the practical strategies and tools that enable individuals, families, communities, organizations, and even nations to thrive or flourish, pick your word. Um, and it's called positive psychology for better or worse, because Marty Seligman's big contribution to the field is that when he became the president of the American Psychological Association in, in the year 2000, he had a good look at his fields. He's a clinician and um, a prolific researcher. And he said, okay, so we've done a really good job of treating and identifying mental illness. So if you like, we're good as a field at getting people from minus five back to zero. Unfortunately, we have dedicated very little time, effort and resources into establishing what it is the ways of thinking and acting and being and living that enable people to go beyond zero. So he said he called for a new field of psychology that was dedicated to researching and practice of enabling people to go beyond par to maybe plus two, plus five even. And so that's why it's called positive psychology. And I think when you look at it in that light, then I can understand why he called it positive psychology. Right. And I, while I was there, I also had the pleasure of being trained um, in resilience psychology by Professor Karen Rivich, who at the time had just been charged with creating the master, she was the master resilience trainer at the University of Pennsylvania, and she was creating the comprehensive soldier fitness training um, for the army. And so it was an amazing time for me to be there and to have Karen as a one of our tutors and lecturers, because this really exposed me to resilience research. And essentially, in Karen's hands and in my hands, resilience isn't about bouncing back. I hate that phrase <laughs> because I don't know about you, but I'm sure for many of your listeners, you would acknowledge and agree with me that when you are navigating tough times, the last thing you feel is bouncy. Right. You know, there's no place for Tigger here. Um, instead, we would define resilience as our capacity, not a fixed trait, our capacity to steer through, navigate all kinds of adversity, disruption, challenge and change so that you can climb out of the hole or even continue to live while you're experiencing going through that adversity. So as we say, Dr. Denise Quinlan is my co-founder and co-director on the Coping with Loss program. And what we say to people is, you know, very often that looks more like 
climbing out through sand or, you know, on all fours, dragging yourself forward. It is the very opposite of bouncy. Yeah. So much of what you just said, I resonate with because I, I, you're right. When I picture bouncing, I picture like accidentally bumping into all of these interruptions in my day and ricocheting more than bouncing and just trying to stay upright. And, and thank you for all of that context, because that's where I'll admit, even when I first started working in this industry, I was resentful for people who Mm. would come alongside and offer platitudes. My mom died in 2016 and it was a very, very short illness and she was gone very quickly. And so that kind of, in addition to everything else of my life, put me on this path and where I became very frustrated was right after I launched my practice and my book, uh, our city had a wildfire that decimated thousands of homes. And so all of a sudden we've got this local crisis and what came out of it immediately was beautiful, right? Homes, Mm. people showing up with resources. And after a few weeks, there was so much resentment in the city of, well, why haven't you found somewhere else to go? Despite Mm -hmm. the fact that 2,500 homes had just been obliterated. And I kept hearing this mentality of bootstrap theology and pick yourself up. And and why can't you be more resilient? Why can't Mm -hmm. you get through this? It happened, move on. And one of the things that I related to so much uh, when I was reading your book, Resilient Grieving, was how you actually acknowledge, no, most of us can do that. We have this innate ability to say we can do both. And we can be devastated and capable and Mm -hmm. that, but that marriage is never honored. I don't see the both and perspective very Mm -hmm. often in this online world of grief support. And so, yeah, I, I think that that's something that finding a way to articulate what resilience really can be and making it very quick and palatable yeah. for people to interpret and, and inter integrate into their lives is so important. How would you, how would you start with the person that's like, um, yeah, I'm not going to just get over it. Like the resistant yeah. griever. Okay. But I, there's lots that I want to. Yeah, go for it. And, and so this is why I, I so agree with you, Mandy. And this is why one of the lines that I repeat so often is that it is possible to live and grieve at the same time. Right. And that's what Abby losing. So I, you know, for those of your listeners who don't know, I um I also lost my mum, you know, quite young. I was sort of 31 or something. Mm-hmm. Um, like you, really quickly, actually. In the time it took me to um grow our middle child, mum died of cancer, and he was born really soon after. And then um, like you, I lived through a totally unexpected natural disaster because um, I live in uh, my adopted hometown is Christchurch in the South Island of New Zealand. And we had massive series of earthquakes um, in 2011 until 2013. So two years of grueling anxiety inducing earthquakes. Um, and that taught me so much. And then I we lost our daughter in a tragic road accident in 2014. So I have, like you, I have a a very broad um, lived experience as well as my academic research. And what it has taught me is that, yeah, that we can live and grieve at the same time, that resilience isn't pretty. It's not what you asked for. It's not what you want to do. But it is in many ways about 
sort of gritting your teeth and and getting through, but also it choosing to focus your attention in ways that might enable you to adapt to that loss. So not again, not feeling great immediately, but actually working to notice what is helping and what is harming you. And by that, I mean the ways of thinking, the ways of acting, the ways of being and the environments around us. Because of course, the environment massively counts and enables or prohibits your resilience. So I think also in my and our, our work at in coping with loss, that's something also that we are very keen to emphasize to people is that resilience isn't just within us, it is built between us. Mm. And I find, um, I you know, spend a lot of time in America, you know, I've studied there, that because of that kind of individualistic culture, quite often people put even more pressure on you to be resilient and you should be resilient and why aren't you being resilient when actually they're failing to take into account the non-resilient or potentially toxic culture or racist or discriminatory culture in which you're living. So we talk about nature, nurture and culture, meaning, you know, some of these capacities um, reside within you. Some of it is something that are learnable skills. That's the nature and nurture bit. And then some of it also, much of it comes from the culture, the pools that you swim in. So that didn't really answer your question, did it? What would I say to someone who, um, we've we've had a few people in our programs recently who have been stuck in their grief for a very long time. Some of them seven or eight years. and have seen a lot of counsellors and eventually come to us to try something new. We have this online live course called A Better Way to Grieve. And, you know, you'd you'd wonder, wouldn't you, who would want to, who would want to come and share their grief in an online course with others. So they're pretty brave souls and they do come in with trepidation and they often say to us, I'm really nervous about the breakout rooms. And the most lovely thing is without fail, by the end of the course, they say to us, I'd like more time in those breakout rooms. So there is a really lovely group dynamic. And recently we've had, um, I think it's three recent clients who have come with pretty, as I say, you know, between six and eight years into their grief and have felt that they've run aground. You've got to want, what I would say is that they want to climb out of that hole. They want to come in their terminology unstuck. So there has to be a willingness from the participant perspective to put the work and effort in to trying out some new thoughts and ideas and skills and tools. We often talk to people about being your own experiment because that's what resilience requires. You know, you have to create your own recipe for resilience. And so they come with a willingness. And what we then do is share some really practical tools and encourage them to try them out and see 
what's a good fit. So we don't come in heavy handed. We don't tell them to be positive or to harden up. We say this is because we've been doing this work for a long time and because we're not self-help Instagrammers, you know, we are academic researchers, then we can say that we can be more confident that the tools we are sharing are more likely to work with you because they've been tried and tested so many times before in different situations with different people, different contexts and different cultures. So um, that seems to be the recipe for success. Mm. Everything you're saying is so rich. I just want to sit with it for a few moments because it, it, it brings me as you're talking to different clients I've worked with and different certifications and courses I've taken and things I've studied that I, I find so easily are stripped down to their most Instagrammable mm. parts and then put into the world without the whole, without the context of it. And I find that that is something that has been really causing harm for grievers. I have a, a client that um, is doing quite well now, but when they started, they were, they would point to say, I've been grieving my, the majority of my life, which is to say for over 40 years. Mm. And it's such an embodied grief at that point, everything about it. And this person would say the same thing. My grief is my entire being mm. that there was, I mean, there were, it was like a challenge when we first met, they were basically saying, I dare you to try to support me. <laughs> and it was, it was an honor to be able to say like, well, I'm actually not the one that's going to fix anything for you. It's not my choice. I, mm. I love your personhood. I see you. I can't make any of these choices for you. I can only navigate, like I can read you the map, but you have to be the one that decides to go forward. Mm. And, um, I think it's really fascinating along those same lines is when you encounter people who are doing that stripping down of the, the, the real support, the, the tools that, like you said, are tested and have been researched, um, encountering the opposite, encountering the simplification of it is really difficult as someone who has poured their life into this work. Mm, uh, yeah, I hear you. And I think it is, do you know what? I think there are two tensions at the heart of this work. And one is what you've just described, the nuance of balancing the complexity with also making these ideas simple and practical enough that they're communicatable, that someone can try them. Yeah. That's the first tension. And the other tension that I come across, Mandy, in this work as a resilience researcher is that we are always trying to get people to understand that they have a choice over their attention. Mm -hmm. And what we are encouraging them to do is to focus their attention on the things that they can change and influence where they do have wiggle room and somehow um, accept the things that they can't. And at the same time, so it's so we're trying to coach them to be really mindful and build their agency. And at the same time, there is this dichotomy and this gray, it's not even a dichotomy, is it? it? There's just the reality is that we can't control everything in the world and we live in a world of impermanence and uncertainty. Yeah. And so I 
it's it is I sometimes think of this as a dance that we are trying the, that complexity of holding those two realities um simultaneously is is tough yeah one of the things that you've said um about resilience and you mentioned it here earlier is just that it's a it's a learned skills these are things that we can actually cultivate and even choosing to say where you're focusing your attention can be really it's it's it feels so inaccessible for people who have been maybe in a victim mindset who have been genuinely victimized and that is fueling their grief it's not necessarily bereavement or death that they're grieving but maybe it's a lack of love or a lack of safety whatever the thing is that they're facing and i'm curious like how do you help invite people into that knowledge that they can learn these skills but also that they have that sense of agency over their lives when they've been so used to feeling the complete opposite. Yeah. So um, the first thing that we always do is give people hope and build their belief. Mm. And we do that with, by sharing science to say that, you know, we know this from the literature that most people manage to get through using very ordinary processes all kinds of potentially traumatic events. So it's in your DNA. And if you think of something like um, mother loss, for instance, you know, or parenting, losing a child, people have lost children throughout eons of times, much more frequently than we do now. And so I think, so we try and encourage people to understand that they have it within them to cope, to build that agency from the beginning. And certainly when we work in our groups, that collective agency is a really interesting dynamic and adds to it as they see other people building their agency. And, and that the way they're using really simple steps, like tiny little steps to do that. Um, we also, I love, I work, our clinical director is called Dr. Emma Woodward. And she has this phrase that if you practice when it's easy, it's easy when it's hard. And, I, and this speaks of the neuroscience. And what I mean by that is that if you practice, for instance, using your strengths, approaching a situation by looking at what you can do here, reminding yourself of what is still good in your world in everyday life, the more you practice focusing your attention on where you can control the situation, where you have done good, where you have strengths and you've used them, the more you practice that in everyday life, then you are rewiring your brain to be more likely to go there when you're in a challenging situation. Mm. And to give you just a really concrete example, one of the um, one of the rules that I had for my own grieving, was that I would only let myself do two what ifs. So I had this two what if rule and I'd find myself thinking, what if I hadn't booked that weekend away where Abby ended up being in a car accident on her journey to our weekend away? That would be one. And then the, you know, the second one would be, what if I hadn't let her get in the car that day? And then I'd think, stop it. So I was trained to know that Nothing ever good comes from ruminating for more than a minute is one of Marty Seligman's, my, you know, my mentor's 
famous lines. And so I'd think, you know, put a timer on, think about this for a minute, do two what ifs, and then change the environment. And in our work with so many of our clients, they've, they are surprised by how much changing the physical environment yes. shifts their thinking. So often that's what they'll say to us is they did two what ifs and then thought, I'm now going to get up, walk away from my desk, get out of bed, go outside, pick up the phone, phone a friend, go and um, do something that's really engaging to force their mind to go elsewhere. And if you practice this when it's easy and you're not in a threatened environment, then over time it becomes easier to do when you are in a hard environment. That phrase might well become one of my new favorites practice when it's easy because, and then it's easy when it's hard, because you said that. And I immediately thought of soccer. I coached my daughter's soccer team and trying to convince these little babies. It's okay to practice. I know it's difficult. We're at practice right now. You don't have someone twice your size breathing down your neck. Let's build the skill. So uh, I'm just going to keep that so I'm gonna, to me. <laughs> so I'm going to add to you and because of the beginning of our conversation. So this is where positive psychology concepts yes. can come into really real life situations and challenging situations as this is a perfect example. So what you're talking about is your growth mindset effectively right. Right. that I know it's not going to be easy at the beginning, but that's because I haven't learned it yet. Um, we're also talking about strengths-based psychology here, that if you know your strengths and you can lean into those, that helps. We're talking about neuroscience and we're also talking about mindfulness, Yeah, you know, not to just be in this moment and go, I'm going to put my attention on what I can do to control this moment and I'm not going to beat myself up and be judgmental about everything that is beyond me, in front of me and behind me. So you can see how it... It, positive psychology for all its terrible terminology has some fantastic theories and insights that really can help us navigate adversity. Yeah. I had a client the other day who was thinking about, I was trying to describe like disrupting the thought pattern so that we could have a different neural pathway. Right. And I said, listen, mm -hmm. if you're thinking of yourself as like, you're in this rut, you're stuck in a rut and you keep having the same thing happening the keep, you can't get out of it. What if suddenly your mindfulness envisions you in the rut with a shovel. And now you are actually digging your way and building a little staircase up out of the rut into something else. Mm -hmm. Well, you're also flattening the terrain and it no longer becomes something you get stuck in because you see a path out. And it was one of those light bulb moments that they were able to say, Oh, that's all I have to do to change my thinking. And I was like, Oh yeah, actually we're going to stop there because the <laughs> fact that you can capture that means you need to go practice Go, yeah. go practice with a book, go start reading a book and decide I'm going to take my thoughts away from this book and onto another book immediately. And then practice keeping your focus on the second book. Mm. And it's, it's those little things that allow us to recognize that, like you said, this healing ability, this innate wisdom is in our bodies. It is in who we were mm. designed to be as humans. And I think, I mean, culturally, that's what catches my attention, at least in America. And I'm sure you've witnessed this as we are so quick to say my strength is my ability to do my own thing and to be an individual. And we focus on life and abundance and culturally, mm -hmm. if there's any type of religion, we're focusing on an afterlife. 
And there's Mm -hmm. so much emphasis on hope and eternity and only good things coming to us because we're such quote unquote good people that Mm -hmm. we've got that idea that we're untouchable and we Mm -hmm. refuse to even consider that loss is a possibility that grief Mm -hmm. could possibly touch us or that we could ever lose someone out of time. And Mm -hmm. it's just, it's, it's refreshing to know that, um, even across the world, this work is happening everywhere we look and that there's so many opportunities for us to help people see like that life is both. And, and how can we not even just learn it, but recall it from our ancestral knowledge that we come from long lines of people who once upon a time, like you said, had six children and only four of them lived or opposite. And I think this is where um, the medicalization of our society, our contemporary society does us a disservice because it is removing death and life failure from our cultural everyday experience and narrative. So we do see it if somebody dies young and we can't save them as a failure of the system. But the reality is that's, that's, you know, living a human existence is we are fallible, we are vulnerable and people have always died. Um, And on top of that, there's the added pressure of perfectionism that makes us think that we shouldn't be suffering and struggling in life because we should lead perfect lives. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I'm, in fact, I read this week, there was a study, it was an old, oldish Michael Ungar study that, um, I've got it on my desk here, I probably can't find it now, but it was something like 70% of people will be exposed to potentially traumatic events in their lifetime. Yeah, and I thought, wow. you know, 71% and 44 of those events will qualify as a trauma according to the DSM-4 criterion. And I thought that's just makes you realize what we're up against, which is why for all of us having a recipe for resilience, knowing the things, the ways of acting and being and the support mechanisms, the external support mechanisms that help us when we're navigating tough times, all of us need to know our own personalized recipe for what works in those moments. I hear those numbers, 71 and 44, and that even seems low. Thinking about from where I stand, I I kind of define trauma as an event where you needed support, but the support wasn't available. And, Mm. and that, and really that can cause trauma in our lives, whether it's, you know, big T trauma or little T trauma, however it affects us. Mm. But I, that, yeah, that just, if I think of it from that way, I think, well, every one of us is encountering things, but to your point, some of us are just really quite resilient deep down in a way that we encounter those things and we metabolize them so quickly because we're not just running around fear-driven and trying to avoid not the unavoidable, but just the reality of life that we will encounter loss. We will know what's coming and books like yours and books like mine and any of the other ones out there. Um, I have a friend that calls them all grief insurance. He just collects Mm. them and says, these Mm. are my grief insurance so that when the shit hits the fan, I can look at the bookshelf and say, well, I'm not ready for any one of you right now, but I will be (laughs) soon. (laughs) Or I'm going to pick this one up and be like, 
Ooh, yeah, that's, that's too much. Can't touch that one yet. And I just, I thought that was so beautiful. Mm. Mm. Oh, hang on. I've got a, I've got a barking dog. Let me just go and get him in. Give me sure. a second. Um, come on then bossy. You need to come in, do you? Um, yeah. Keeping it real. Hey, all of us. It's my favorite. <laughs> I can hear my kiddo in the background, uh, singing and turning on her music, even though I said, Hey, I'm recording. So just We'll see. Here it might go. just be background music. Hey, buddy. <laughs> yep. That one's definitely some reason. Something's happened that he's had to come and sit on my lap. <laughs> my dog will be at the door pressing against it because she tests it to see if it'll open. And then she'll just lie there if it isn't open and just wait. And then she kind of falls in when you open the door. Yeah. Um. Okay. I know you are a little bit short for time and I want to make sure that we honor that. And I just want to end with something that I thought was really beautiful in your book, um, that you start out with that I try to get people, anybody who's in the grief world to address, because I'm sure you've encountered this, that the majority of people, especially in modern culture, only understand grief as something they can, when they need it, go for the five stages and mm -hmm. work their way down the checklist. Mm -hmm. And I've, I've lost people every year of my life that I can remember. Like I have encountered grief and loss in violent ways and in expected ways since I was little. And so I kind of knew early on that they were BS, but I didn't have the language to articulate it until I got a little bit older and realized there has to be a, a place on the other side. We'll, we'll call it a sixth step for lack of a better way of saying it. There has to be something that goes beyond just accepting that death is real. And, um, I'm, I would love for you to just explain how you came to the recognition of like, okay, these five steps are, are familiar, but they are fully unhelpful. Mm, mm. Um, so I, when Abby died in 2014, and I first became curious about how much of the resilience research, you know, my field could be helpful yeah. when, um, for the bereavement context, I had, I hadn't looked at the scientific research um, about bereavement as much. I was very familiar with resilience psychology, less so with bereavement research. So like most people, I had I knew about the five stages of grief and you know that was kind of like, okay, so I'm gonna go through those five stages. But I distinctly recall thinking they're only they're not very helpful, are they? Because it's about what's going to be, you're being told this is what's going to happen to you. So they kind of rob you of any um, influence and active engagement in your grief journey. So that was my first bugbear with them. But then I went looking at all those journals and discovered that actually we now know that those five stages of grief, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's work, she they were her observations about people who were dying, not not for the bereaved at all. So they don't apply to bereavement. The, um, in fact, nowadays, scientists and researchers like me are working hard to debunk the myth of the five stages of grief. We do not go through five stages of grief. There is very little research to indicate that people do go through those five stages. Instead, we like to say that grief is as individual as your fingerprint. 
So if grief is as individual as your fingerprint, it can't be a universal experience that we all go through, you know, in terms of five stages. But my main real reason that I didn't like the five stages was, as I explained, that they just were like this passive thing. They made me a passive victim. And I wanted to know that I was doing everything I possibly could to help me and my family get through the loss of our daughter. So one of the pieces of wisdom that I collected along the way from one of the leading researchers in the field is Tom Attic. And I like the fact that he distinguishes between your grief reaction and your grief response. And this is also in my book, Resilient Grieving, where he talks about your grief reaction is everything you feel in in that aftermath when you lose somebody. And so this is where those five stages, if you are going to experience anger and bargaining and denial, um, but all of the emotions and all of the keening and pining and longing and ranting and raving and crying and weeping, that is your grief reaction. You have very little control over your emotional, cognitive, and even physiological response yeah. versus your grief response, which is pervaded with choice. How you respond to the loss of a loved one is very much within your control. The ways of thinking and acting that you discover that help you, that help ease that process. We're not talking about removing the misery, but actually helping you learn to live with it and adapt to the fact that they are no longer in the world. So those things we call grief response. Um, and, and a really lovely example of that is working out what this person taught you, what their legacy is, and rituals and ways that you can continue to keep them present in your life, even though they are no longer physically here. Ah. <laughs> Beautiful. Lucy, this has been such a, a treasure. I'm so grateful that I got to connect with you and hear so many of the things that I've thought in my head validated as it comes out of your mouth. So I'm like, yay, we are doing the good work. Um, your book is of course, Resilient Grieving and anybody that wants it, it's available on Amazon and I'm sure everywhere you buy books and your group coping with loss, where can they find that? So um, the website is copingwithloss.co, nice and simple. Mm -hmm. um, we do have a free Facebook group, which is also called Coping With Loss. Um, so go and have a look on Facebook. And it is, um, we describe it as a place of hope, support and action. And there are so many bereavement groups on Facebook, but so many of them are quite depressing places to be. So ours is quite a marked contrast to those. Um, and yeah, come and find out about A Better Way to Grieve, which is our live online program. And, and we've also got um, self, what do you call them? Self-paced programs as well. So um, thank you. Uh, yeah, it's been awesome talking to you, Mandy, and really respect the work you do. Thank you. And likewise, I'm excited. I'm going to come find your Facebook group and just observe and yeah. be a part of it. So thank you so much. Thank you for listening to episode 85 of Restorative Grief. 
I don't know if you can hear it in my voice in this interview, but the conversation with Lucy was important for me in a way I didn't see coming beforehand. I think it can be discouraging after a time working in this industry and to see so many people hurting, knowing full well it's not possible to support them all. So Dr. Hone's work in resiliency and the facts around this skill set as one we can learn and lean into means we are not people without hope. I know many of you listening have a complicated relationship with hope and for good reason. Giving yourself permission to live within the both and of hope and grief means you are choosing your focal points and choosing yourself, both your future self to be whole and happy and your present self to be real and honest. If this is your first time listening to the show, thank you for being here. A little shout out, of course, to my patrons and premium subscribers who keep the work going. If you want to join us and are willing to be a financial supporter for the show, it's easy to do and it would be an honor to have you on the team. You can learn more about premium memberships at mandycapehart.com or in the show notes. And be sure to check out the show notes for connection to Lucy's TED Talk, to her book, to her community, Coping with Loss, and to her program, A Better Way to Grieve. All of them are brilliant resources, especially if you resonated with what she had to say here. Whatever you do, be sure to subscribe to the show and leave a sparkling five-star review because they're my favorite. And consider sharing this episode with someone who keeps you hopeful despite all the chaos you've endured because they need to know that you're with them and that you trust that they are with you too. And as always, one last thing. Please remember, the only solution for grief is to do the work of grieving. Thank you for listening. I'll see you next week. Mm -hmm.